0: Context is so key to sex. Sex is always in context and most of us in our homes, there's always something else to do. Sex very easily becomes deprioritised and that distraction that can come about from all of those things and knowing that that kind of to-do list is never done and that list of things is never fulfilled is really interrupting when it comes to desire and I think that that's when we talk about that ability from switching off to turn on.
1: Welcome to Two Women Chatting. I'm Michelle and I'm Liz. And this week we thought we'd talk about mm. sex. <laughs> there we go. First giggle of the day. <laughs>
2: There's a song called that. Won't be the last. Yeah. yeah, no.
1: But why is it we we laugh about it? Well,
2: we think we're like little children. We're like little schoolgirls today because we're, <laughs> we're going to be talking about sex, which is the most natural
1: thing. And yes, we mm. should be open about it. But having said that, um, Jemima, mm. Flissie, oh, yeah. Josh, my mm. mother, James. Mm-hmm. You can turn off now. Thank you so much for doing that. And all your friends. Yeah, ditto my my kid's mother and uh, anyone else that knows me. And whilst we will not be sharing our own personal experiences... Well, no. Well, you can if you want to. I won't (laughs) be. You've got three children. Miracle of birth. But um, we have been asking a lot of our friends... um, you know, and we want to do this sort of anonymously because who really wants to ask about vaginas on a podcast? No,
2: but we're not just gonna talk about sex, we're gonna talk about um what well, definition of sex and how as we get older how we, we, we're interested in different things. And and I'd like to bring up the, the conversation about separate bedrooms. That's something I'd like to ask.
1: Yeah, that I've heard a lot of people yeah. do that. And some people just say it's really great for their romantic life.
2: Mm.
1: Um and others say they sleep better. And you know what? If you're feeling better and you're sleeping better, and maybe you meet for a date in one bedroom or another, yeah. I can see how that might spice it up a bit. Yeah. Or it could be the slippery slope. Who knows?
2: I don't know. I'd I'd love to, to find it. Because as I, said, I told you, I know quite a few friends or couples that
1: do have separate bedrooms. But looking back to November, I mean, we were we were <laughs> laughing about this. And we we do use euphemisms, don't we, as a bit of a generation about, you know, the old films. Carry like, old films. <laughs> carry on up the kyber and who uh, Misses, <laughs> and you know you use all these words to describe what sex is but it is such an important part of connection and um, feeling good about yourself and mm-hmm. actually doing a little bit of research on this it's actually got health benefits for both men and women mm-hmm. there's lots of health benefits and um, I think mostly on the connection level you know we've got kids who are now leaving home you've got an empty nest perhaps You've got a bit more freedom at home. You know, um, you're not worried that someone's gonna walk in on you or hear you or any of those things. It's it's more relaxing. Well, you know. Potentially liberating. Mm, yeah. yeah. That's a good word, isn't
2: it? It's liberating. Well, it, it is true. Mind you, know, the doorbell always goes.
1: During the night, Liz <laughs> <laughs> Doorbell's never gone on me. <laughs> You know like, what to mean. There you go. You're like
2: a little girl. I know. No, I've actually gone red. If you're watching this on
1: video, I have actually just gone a bit of a shade yeah, of red. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> Too much information, she goes. But that's what we're meant to be talking about. Exactly. And, you know, I think we've grown up a lot on this podcast talking about all kinds of subjects. And when we look back on November, when we went to the menopause event, Pause Live... <laughs> And Liz and I (laughs) never saw this coming when we started a podcast, that she and I would be standing underneath a giant vulva Mm -hmm. having a photo and then we would post that all over social Social media. media. Mm. Yeah, that's a new one on us. But I think we should talk to somebody who does know a lot about sex and and won't be embarrassed Mm. in the slightest with any question. We've asked a lot of our friends, haven't we, um, Mm. if they want to... Give some anonymous questions that we can just funnel. And and there was a lot
2: because I think it's that whole thing. It's our generation. We do get a little bit embarrassed about talking about sex. So doing it anonymously.
1: I can't say that anonymously. No, me and my phone. (laughs) Anonymously. Without knowing who it is. But listen on because I think we're going to um, get some enlightenment and some practical advice and some great tips from our guest, Kate Moyle, who is a renowned sex expert um, she's the host of the Sexual Wellness Sessions podcast. She's also the therapist on bbc Three's Sex on the Couch, and she's had a new book out, which is called The Science of Sex, Every Question About Your Sex Life Answered. So who better to ask these questions off than Kate Moyle? So let's get her on the pod. So joining us today is Kate Moyle, renowned expert and trusted resource in the field of psychosexual therapy. has written extensively on the topic of sex in midlife, which is obviously what we're interested in. Her work focuses on providing guidance and support to individuals experiencing changes in their sexual lives during this stage of life. And she's also the host of the Sexual Wellness Sessions podcast. So welcome, Kate. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me on.
1: Well, in true um, (laughs) girly... immature too. style we thought we'd ask questions from a friend and they really are from quite a lot of uh, friends and acquaintances um, to ask you some questions particularly about sex in midlife so if that's all right with you we'll do a kind of a Q&A format and uh, just give us your knowledge we'll start off with Liz. Perfect. Well, I think,
2: as as Michelle just said, though, it's weird. It's one of those topics that, you know, we're grown up, we talk about everything, but sex is one of those topics which I don't know if maybe the younger generation are more open with it, but we're still not that open about it. So really, I'd like to know your definition of what is sex.
0: Well, really, the definition that most of us kind of work on is sex is intercourse or penis and vagina penetration. And one of the biggest problems that we have with this is that Obviously, that is a part of sex, but it's not the sex that a lot of people are having. It's not the sex that is applicable to all couples or all people or all individuals based on um, genders, based on sexuality, based on physical abilities, you know, bodies. There's so much going on based on preference. And so what we tend to now try and think about is the circular model of sex, which is that it's a sexual experience, which we can do for a number of reasons. And again, that it's not just something that is for procreation. And so much of sex has become focused and particularly our sex education has been focused around reproduction. But we know that the reasons that most people are having sex isn't to conceive a lot of the time. And one of my favorite pieces of research identified 237 reasons for why people said they were having sex. Wow. And, wow. you know, the the meaning of sex is such a big part of that. And a lot of the time is the reason why people are having it. Mm. So, OK, in midlife,
1: we may have been with our partners for quite some time. We may be into decades of marriage, perhaps. And as you mentioned, early days, you're kind of looking at the reproductive side of it, the fun side of it. How do we reintroduce more fun when perhaps it's got a bit dull and boring? How do we even open up those communications when you've just been in this routine perhaps for a long long time without it becoming how can I say maybe confrontational or critical even? Mm,
0: Yeah I, I think it's a huge question and it's one of the things that is really important to say here is that people can have been having sex for 20 years and never talked about it and often one of the things that happens is people don't really talk about sex until they have a problem. Mm. And if they haven't started their sex life or their relationship by being one of those couples that talk about it, it feels like it's something very hard to start and almost arguably harder the longer you've been together, the longer you haven't talked about it. And you know, often people kind of work around it without ever having to confront it. And I think that a really good way of starting the conversation is around what's changed and we know that midlife is a time that changes things for lots of people and it's not necessarily that people have been in relationships for a really long time we know that there's a huge um huge group of people who are starting new relationships at this point in their life Mm. and that actually can come with a kind of separate group of anxieties or a very different group of anxieties the familiarity the routine bit is something that happens a lot of the time we call it habituation for us as humans but particularly a lot of the time in relationships and that becomes paired with the we don't know how to talk about changing it factor and in terms of starting a conversation even if it's something we've never talked about I often say to people kind of say I listened to a podcast today or I read a book today or I read an article today or I try and kind of l Shape the conversation so it feels like it's come from another source, and that can be a good way of starting right. it. Because often, I think when we feel that we have to start it, the pressure means that we'd rather just avoid it at all costs.
1: Oh, yeah, mm. totally. That's a great idea yeah. to just say, Oh, yeah, my friend was talking about such and such, or definitely heard it on the Two Women Chatting podcast mm. would be a really excellent start. But it's also <laughs> <laughs> good,
2: good, good advertising there, but it's also, I, I think, you know, I'm gonna say, speaking personal experience here. You know, we've had the kids, they're at home, you know, life is busy. But when you go on holiday or you're on a, in a hotel room or something, you know, your inhibition seems to disappear. Why can't you bring that back home? What is it that's because, stopping it?
0: Because context is so key to sex. Sex is always in context. And the reality is most of us in our homes, there's always something else to do. Sex very easily becomes deprioritized. And we talk about sex, not like a kind of drive, like the drive that we have for everything else, you know, to to sleep, eat, breathe, but a kind of secondary drive that very easily gets deprioritized. And we particularly know that desire changes across the lifetime, but also is really context-based that it changes whatever we have going on, whether that's our physical environment, whether that's how we're feeling, whether it's our mental health our medication, um, physical symptoms that we're experiencing. And on holiday, we are typically kind of escaping routines. We're typically escaping our to-do list. We might switch off. Something I talk about a lot is this idea of switching off to turn on. And it's much easier to do it in a context which is separate from everything else that. We have usually, but also it gives us a chance to see ourselves and our partners in a new light, and that can be a a great thing for desire.
1: Mm. And I think what you almost touched on there, Liz, was also, you know, if our kids have left and we now have an empty nest, that can be kind of liberating, can't it? Because you don't have people coming, you know, into the room potentially. You don't have, have like, can they hear us? You know, do we have Mm, to be really, really quiet? Do we have Mm. to be, you know, just only do it in the bedroom all that sort of thing it can be I would guess I'm saying I would guess
0: (laughs) oh here it goes
1: here goes the blush um
0: (laughs) it would be pretty liberating yeah and I think again that's a distraction you know people in the house and particularly you know when children are either really small or really young uh, really small and really young or kind of older and near adults we know that that kind of the rules of coming in and coming out change whereas when children are kind of that slightly like middle-aged they might just like potter around go downstairs whereas teenagers and particularly kind of closer to um younger adults kind of come in and out more as they wish and kind of roam around the house and young children have no concept of kind of private mm-hmm. spaces you know very young mm-hmm. children so we can fear that anxiety sometimes about being overheard or Um, being interrupted and that in itself becomes a distraction and when we are distracted we're not really physically in our bodies and in our pleasure and that in itself can inhibit both our kind of psychological motivation wanting of sex or the desire but also our, our physical pleasure
1: I think especially with women, would you agree that I think, you know, we're sort of on high alert all the time listening for, <laughs> oh, do the kids need us? Is that the doorbell or whatever it is? I, I think women find it really hard to completely switch off from the multiple responsibilities that they have. But hope you, hopefully mm. that becomes a little bit easier if you know there's nobody in the house or, or whatever that could be
0: for you. Absolutely when we are preoccupied and this is something that we hear a lot from mothers and a lot from people kind of in that stage where we're also not focusing on ourselves we're so prioritizing everyone else's needs and what can happen is sex can feel like another thing which is about someone else's needs at points and that distraction that can come about from all of those things and knowing that that kind of to-do list is never done and that list of things is never fulfilled is really is really interrupting when it comes to desire and I think that that, that's when we talk about that ability from switching off to turn on and we've seen that mindfulness studies have proven to be really good for sex lives and actually where studies have been done by people like Dr. Laurie Brotto who are based in Canada she has done it with um, people who have gone through cancer And what she's found is not only did the mindfulness exercises help with the psychological side of feeling increased desire, but also that there was a physical impact. So the body is actually creating more arousal in response to those kind of techniques as well. So it's more engaged. Where would you find those techniques? Asking for a friend asking for a friend of course um so Dr Laurie Laurie Brotto so she um she's been a guest on my podcast which is the sexual wellness sessions she has a brilliant book um and there will be numerous kind of podcasts with her around and videos but really simply mindfulness is directing your attention in a particular direction without judgment so it's kind of basically directing your attention back into the body is what we talk about when it comes to sex because so many of us we'll be having sex and suddenly like a thought will pop into our heads and we we'll thinking about that. And then that'll take us off somewhere else. And then we kind of almost forget that we're in the moment of having sex. And like you were saying earlier, that sense of kind of being feeling like we're permanently distracted. And so it's about directing attention back towards the sensations that are happening in the body and a really good exercise to do. If you're trying to practice that is running through the five senses at any point. So whether that's in the shower mm. or kind of going about your daily day and just because it is a practice, it's about kind of learning how to do that.
2: I'm going to ask a friend of mine, and I won't say her name, but she used to put it in the diary. Which Is that healthy or is that a sensible? At least it's, it's, it's you know, it's, it's logged that she's got to have sex with her husband. You know, it's a, or is that a negative towards the marriage?
0: I don't think it's necessarily a negative. Well, what we recommend as psychosexual therapists is that we don't, Um, schedule sex but we say do schedule time to be together do put Mm -hmm. things in the do mark that time and there's an intentionality which is really good for relationships which is this is important for us to spend time together and to be together and we're going to prioritize that above anything else so and you know I always liken it to the fact that we book our meetings at work we um, call our friends we schedule to catch up with our families Do we put in our doctor's appointments, our gym classes, whatever. We do it with everything else. But we have this very um, romantic view of sex and relationships, which is that they just happen. And actually scheduling means that you're making sure that it happens. And Mm -hmm. that prioritizing and that intentionality is a really important part of relationships. And actually is one of the things that we see is a really important factor for people who report maintaining and having good sex lives is that they they make it they make sure it's a part of their lives and it's not about the act of having sex in that moment but it is about kind of connecting in that physical way
1: just realized she was a PA that's probably why she did it While well, she shared <laughs> <laughs> I've heard you say before Kate that um, intimacy is just as important as sex and I think it's very very easy in a long marriage to forget to have Mm, a lingering Mm. kiss where you don't think oh god if this lingers any longer then I know we're gonna have to do the whole checkbox sex thing but it's I you have advised and I've, I've heard you say this that staying in that moment but knowing it doesn't have to lead to something else but just working on the intimacy eventually it might be that you want to anyway but it is so easy to be fleeting isn't it with with your interactions mm. because um you know you just have all this stuff going on you i'm i'm terrible you know my poor husband when he phones me it's like okay um can i get back to you on that you know because i'm i'm flit- flitting and this is partly my adhd is i'm hopelessly chaotic but i know it would be kinder a good investment i love him dearly i need to focus in more on giving him absolute one-on-one attention when I don't feel like okay this has to lead somewhere it can be cuddling on a sofa or you know just having him rub my feet god I remember the days Um, but (laughs) (laughs) that sort of thing Would, uh,
0: would you agree on that yeah and the thing is we we use the term sex and intimacy synonymously and actually they're they're two different things and obviously there can be a relationship between the two and they can contribute to each other but you can have an in, an intimate relationship without sex and you can have a sexual relationship without intimacy. But what the Gottmans, who are some of the biggest um, sex and relationship inter- um, researchers in the world, describe as exercises like a six-second kiss and a 10-second hug. And what they call the six-second kiss is a kiss with potential. And I love, I love that phrase because so often, you know, we all do it. We're all kind of busy and hectic. And modern life is... Full on, and we never switch off because our technology never switches off. So we're always contactable. Um, but is we have those kind of you know peck on the cheek, run out the door moments, and what those potential moments allow when we lean into them? A is a potential for responsive desire to be triggered, which might mean that we start to lean into feeling sensual and then sexual. And what we talk about responsive desire is, is the type of desire that happens once we, have, we start something and then the desire to kind of continue emerges. So rather than we feel really turned on in the kind of flash of lightning feeling and then we do something about it so we can start that. And that's where you know, the scheduling kind of time together we talked about a minute ago also kind of comes into effect. But it's those little moments of connection are often what I describe as bridges are really important in relationships because even if we're not having sex what they can do is allow us to feel connected or there is a level of sexual connection there and we often describe those as sexual currency so mm. it's about kind of keeping currency rolling or higher within a couple so that we feel that those moments are still there or that that, that, that kind of type of connection is still there is mm. still present
1: that's similar you had a question uh, didn't you about or you had a, about
0: separate bedrooms
2: yeah um, is it good for a relationship um to have you know couples sleeping in separate bedrooms as they get as we get older
0: i think it's dependent on the couple i mean lots of couples do and it depends on then i think their routines of coming back together if they want to be intimate and to have sex for some couples it means that they can sleep better you know particularly um, we see that certain times it might happen. So if people are having cancer treatments and they're not feeling like they want to be close to their partner or they're having to you know, go to the bathroom loads of times a night or they're having hormonal reactions, You know, lots of women who are menopausal, for example, or perimenopausal say they get so hot, they have such disturbed <laughs> sleep, they're having night sweats that they just actually don't want to be touched by anyone. Um, you know if we have people going through induced menopause where it's very sudden they can have those reactions really strongly and really intensely and it can feel easier sometimes to manage those things on your own but really it's about you know how that works for that particular couple and also what it can do is people can do it without then having those bridging moments or those connection moments in another way and I think if you're doing it but you want to maintain a kind of sensual sexual relationship it's about working out how you do that it might be that you know, actually, that you, if you can, and if your schedules allow it, then kind of come back together in the morning and start your mornings by being together, rather mm. than so kind shifting of the at night. time.
1: It doesn't have to be at night, does it? It can be during the morning, Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon. And I think you meant you you just touched upon there um, menopause. Gosh, that comes with mm. so many hang ups, so confidence things. You know, you're not sometimes your sleep is disturbed, so. You know, you're not feeling frisky. You don't, you're just exhausted all the time. I had a question from somebody that says, um, that was, when you've put on weight, as so often is the case in midlife, and you're not feeling body confident, you're worried about your body image, and it becomes very much under the covers, never see me naked, um, don't even shower in front of your partner anymore because you just don't feel confident Is that something that – how can you work on that? Because I I do really think that if you have more inner confidence and you're more confident in your body, you're more likely to be a bit more um, adventurous perhaps Mm. and a bit more just carry yourself in a different way. Would you have any advice Mm. on how to try and claw back on that? And then as a supplementary question, um, there's the – More painful aspects of sex in main in menopause, the the vaginal dryness and and so on. So, first of all, the body confidence. I think that's a big one for lots of women.
0: Mm. I think the body confidence thing is across the lifetime, and you know we see it particularly with um, people who are postnatal, or you know also things people going through things like infertility or miscarriages who were struggling with a relationship with their body again through cancer. You know whether it's diagnosis, treatment. through menopause. And body confidence really is about not how we look, but how we feel. And a lot of people's anxieties come from how they feel they've changed. I think a lot of the time conversations with our partners can be really helpful, but doing things that make you feel good in your body. So whether it's wearing something like um, a texture of a material that feels really nice on your skin, it might sound really small but it might be something that just makes you feel a bit better. And again, it can help you to kind of root in your sensations. And we want you to be feeling good and feeling pleasure. The body confidence bit, again, what it does is it takes us into our thoughts and keeps us preoccupied by what's going on in our head, rather than what's going on in our body. And you know, really the, the kind of simple answer, which is not wildly helpful, is do what helps you to kind of feel good in yourself. And mm. once we know that people feel more comfortable, then they feel more confident. But we also live in a society where women get a lot of messages about how they look, how they appear, what their bodies should be like all the time. And so there is a much, you know, a much bigger, wider conversation going on here. Mm, that's
1: so And true. then
0: in terms of kind of, the vaginal atrophy that we can experience in menopause so menopause has 34 common symptoms very few of which make us feel good or make us feel sexy from you know um kind of kind of cloudy brain muddled brain to um night sweats to vaginal dryness to hot flashes to feeling kind of really up and down in our feelings to not feeling listened to, to changes in identity. So we talk about these things from what we call a biopsychosocial approach. So the biological, the social elements and the psychological elements. And you know, often women are saying, I just don't feel like myself. And that's not something that makes me feel good. Or I felt kind of top of my game and top of my career. And I'm struggling to remember like where I put my keys. And that stuff can have such a negative impact on how we feel about ourselves. And the vaginal dryness is to do with the the drop in oestrogen where the um, tissue of the vagina becomes less lubricated, less elastic. A great water-based lubricant is a really, really good thing here as well as vaginal moisturisers. And I recommend Yes Organics all the time. They're brilliant, all natural, all organic. But having sex when it hurts you and it's causing you pain is going to only be... A negative Mm. thing. It's not going to make you want to do it again. It's going to have an impact on your desire, but also it's negatively reinforcing. And there are lots of simple solutions, but so many of us feel shame or embarrassment about having to use those solutions. And that in itself is one of the biggest barriers. Mm. So talking to your GP as as well about these things, I think it's really important
1: because there are things that you can take like uh, the, the Vagifem um, and uh, the the pessaries for, that are oestrogen based, and the lubricants as you you mentioned. You know we're not in our twenties anymore, and I think we have to consider sex in a different way that makes it more pleasant, pleasurable. And the pleasure index, I think, is is very important, isn't it, to, to do it because you want to do it and because it's fun. And do we focus perhaps too much? I, I would say that most women, as they get older, no, I don't know. I don't know my stats, to be honest. But from, from the general conversations that I've had with people, it is harder and takes longer to orgasm. Do we focus too much on that being, that's what we're going for, and if we don't get that, then that was kind of rubbish?
0: We do have a really goal orientated model when it comes to sex. It's, it is, <clears throat> as you're describing. A lot of women say that they are struggling, and you know, men as well. But a lot of people are saying they're struggling to reach that point of orgasm in the way that they used to. Part of it is, you know, the physical and the ch- changes that we're going through. Part of it is also the more we worry about it not happening, or the wor- the longer we worry about it, the more we worry about yeah. that it's taking longer the more distracted we are, and the more that's interrupting our pleasure. But also, I think the problem is, is that so many of us are, we always talk about like how things have changed, we're getting things back to where they used to be. And actually, our sex lives go in all these different phases and stages. And again, how we're taught about sex is the the static thing that never changes. We're never kind of taught about it as, you know, there's going to be changes, there are going to be things that happen to you, that this is something that might be more fluid and that you know adapting our sex lives throughout these different stages is a really important thing to acknowledge that we might have to do or that Mm -hmm. might make it work better for us and I think making it work for us in whatever way it works is is a big part of that yeah I I guess
2: that sort of brings in um Viagra um which I, I I always thought it was for men but I've heard there is Viagra for women as well is that correct
0: it's not licensed. It's it's a different, it's a different product. And um, it's, there's nothing like that kind of in the UK at the moment, but Viagra has just had its 30 year, it's 30 years this year. And that's why there's lots of documentaries and stuff going on around it at the moment. But also the way that it works is it's not an aphrodisiac. What it does is it inhibits the reaction. So it basically stops erections kind of draining or going away as quickly. But I think that often people take it and they think that it's an aphrodisiac and it's going to make them feel really turned on now obviously there can be psychological effects which there can be a relief with taking something like that or a feel you know a feeling of okay i've got some assistance or i can relax more or i can feel more confident and those things of course can have an impact but really it's about it's about changing blood flow Mm. how would i'm trying to think if you feel that your partner
1: has got an erectile dysfunction um how can you gently go about suggesting that perhaps he looks into Viagra or something similar without being offensive?
0: I think that again, a a conversation around it, we know that the statistics for men struggling with erections increases with age. And we know that that's for um, decrease in muscle tone, but also decreases in testosterone. And so that it's, it's not something that's unexpected, and we see those statistics increasing in line with age. It's really normal to go and discuss that with your doctor if you're worried. An important thing to say is if you notice a sudden loss of morning erections, so morning erections basically are nocturnal erections which happen throughout the night, and typically when you're in the period of REM sleep just before you wake up is when you'll be having an erection, So which is why lots of people wake up with morning erections. So that's like Again, tent bed. <laughs> exactly um, Morning, but That's again funny. there's decline there's decline naturally um with aging but if they change suddenly it's absolutely something to seek medical advice on quickly because it can be an indicator of something else going on in the body for example things like cardiovascular disease because of changes to blood flow and really if it's interrupting your sex life that your your partner is struggling or that you're noticing they're struggling being able to talk about it and then seek some advice about it is a really, really good thing. And there's nothing to be ashamed of. I think the shame of feeling like we're the only ones that have a problem is one of the biggest barriers to people seeking help and advice, which could really change things for them in a really positive way.
1: Mm. Well, there's a lot of health benefits, isn't there, to having a sex life at sort of any Any adult age. age. Um, But in midlife, I'm thinking more like sort of strengthening your pelvic floor and does it help with incontinence too, if you can do more exercise down there?
0: Well, strengthening the pelvic floor, having a toned pelvic floor is great for everything pelvic related. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a brilliant book by a friend of mine called Strong Foundations. Um, she's a pelvic floor th- therapist called Claire Bourne, and she talks about pelvic health across the lifetime. But we know that a more toned pelvic floor helps with incontinence. Um helps improve orgasm because part of orgasm is a wave of muscular contractions. And so a more toned pelvic floor can mean that you can feel those contractions more, that they can be stronger, but also it's important to say an overtight pelvic floor can make sex uncomfortable. And so because the vagina basically runs through the pelvic floor. And so if you're really tense, then it can make penetrative sex painful or sore. Mm. Um, And, but definitely, like a pelvic floor has a range of benefits, but making sure that we're, if we're doing those exercises, that we're doing them properly, the relaxing is as important as the tensing.
2: Right. Do you know, I was always told to do those pelvic floor exercises when I was pregnant. And mm. of course, I didn't. And I'm just wondering, you know. Never too late. Was, that's literally what I am going to say. Is it too late? Because I'm no, sure there's lots of women late. out there who are the same as me.
0: No, never too late. And I think one of the things that, is you've just hit the nail on the head, is we only tend to hear about them for the first time when we're pregnant. Yeah. yeah. And then you have it drilled into you because obviously the pelvic floor is under such huge amounts of pressure during pregnancy and then childbirth. Um, but then we kind of forget to mention that it's important all of the time. And we know that incontinence statistics in women, particularly kind of midlife onwards, are huge. I have um, one almost final question,
1: because quite honestly I could sit here and talk to you all day. Mm. <laughs> but... How about a helping hand? Sex toys. Um, (laughs) Here you go. I don't even know how to ask it. But would you recommend it? Is it, is it, I mean, I think a lot of people take different times to get to where they want to be. So, particularly in midlife, I think with, you know, distractions and and you know it's maybe a little harder to to get to orgasm would you recommend using something like a sex toy or a vibrator to spice things up help you get there and how do you kind of get over the embarrassment of of so should we try this then it's a bravery I, move in some ways but it's also kind of selfish and necessarily so i'm going to say something here and my kids have their list you'll get me here. it's um
2: it can be funny yeah you know you, you make it funny make the entertainment value out of that's thought... <laughs> what okay. all
1: right then <laughs> no actually there you go being
0: back but you know it's entertainment you can make it funny and then it yeah it can work all right <laughs> yeah I mean I think toy is a, a great addition at any stage um I I work with a toy brand called Lilo But, and what I love about them is that they do have a whole range of products and they don't look, I think sometimes when we think about sex toys, we think they have to look really phallic or really realistic Mm -hmm. or really body-like. And actually sex toys nowadays, I mean, there is the most enormous range and they can be completely beautiful and fit for purpose, some that fit in the palm of your hand, some that are designed for men to wear, some that are designed for couples, for individuals. What they are great at is increasing intensity of sensation. So if you are struggling to reach an orgasm or it feel like it's taking longer or you feel like you need more, then they can be great for that. They are great for both kind of solo or couples. I think introducing them with a partner, if you don't know where to start, it's kind of having that conversation, which is, shall we try something together? How would you feel about trying something new? Remembering you're always a step ahead of them if you're the one introducing the conversation. So if they need a bit of time to catch up with you, kind of give them that chance. But I often say to people, look at a website together and choose one together so that you're then at least in the same boat, or you can both say, that looks terrifying. No, never will I ever try that. But that one I'm kind of okay with. And I think there's something in that. But there are some great ones that are, you know, literally like little vibrators that kind of sit in the palm of your hand or some that are kind of more like wand shaped and, or kind of um, bullet shaped. And I often say to people, incorporate them into non-genital play or like massage. So kind of rub them all over each other's bodies or try them on your own first, see how you feel and just work out what feels good. If the goal is what Emily Nagoski, who's a kind of icon in my world describes as pleasure is the measure then doing something together which feels good for you both can be a can be a great thing wow well, i think that's a great place to end on
1: as they say a happy ending <laughs> sorry <laughs> <laughs> um okay you are obviously just full of great tips and advice um if people want to know more where do they find your website and your contact details
0: uh, so my website is my name, which is katemoyle.co.uk. My book is The Science of Sex, which is basically over 100 of the most asked questions about sex from both a biology, social and psychological point of view. So it's also beautifully illustrated. We have anatomy diagrams, um, fun illustrations and a lot of statistics about kind of what's happening in people's sex lives. And then my podcast is the sexual wellness sessions where every conversation is a deep dive with an expert into a different area of sex so we've got conversations from desire to induced menopause to how to talk to kids about sex to sex and spinal cord injuries um really you know whatever we think is missing as well please get in touch and tell me and i'll put it on the next series
1: amazing incredible thank you so much for joining us you've been so (laughs) enlightening and helpful and i'm sure many many of our listeners husbands will be delighted you joined us on this one and so will they, to be fair. <laughs> it starts at, Charity starts at home, right? <laughs> Thank you so much. That was a good one. It was great. I could honestly, we say it a lot, but I have a whole bunch more questions <laughs> I want to ask Kate. Well,
2: there it is. It's one of those topics you said. Once you get started and you forget that you've actually been recorded, you know, I've had loads more questions.
1: Well, I think she's just so easy to talk to. She, I mean, I was nervous about doing this particular episode because I just thought, oh, are we going to be all silly and girly about it? And, you know... We but, were before. <laughs> we were at the beginning. But she just makes it feel okay to ask anything. And I think normalising a conversation about sex, whether it's with a group of women like, or with, with your partner, mm. it's so important to actually talk about it. And I think... You know, for many of us, get stuck in a rut um, in terms of, you know, who initiates it. Um, do you, say, you know, is your partner suddenly going to think, "Hello, what's happening?" <laughs> it's like, Hello. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> she you not thought of that? Yeah, but
2: it's, it's true. I think it's. I think, as I said, maybe it's our generation. You know, the younger younger generation are a lot more open to everything. But I think we, 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 it's just embarrassed about it. Well,
1: isn't it the way that we've been brought up to not really talk about yeah. it? Yeah. So it's just, therefore, well, it's fairly entrenched in just our our cultural values. Yeah. Being a female that is now in their you know forties or fifties, I think just generally. I mean, when was <laughs> when did we start saying vagina so liberally? <laughs> Do you know <laughs> what I mean? Or oh, menopause. Yeah. You know, well, menopause only a few years. But these conversations are so much more mm. recent, yeah. and I'm delighted that people can talk about it and ask questions and have podcast resources like us like sexual wellness sessions that they can go to and find answers you know imagine you know previous generations when you were just completely reliant on maybe asking a friend or your mother or your sister you didn't have google you can didn't say oh how often do people have sex is this normal we have it three times a day we have it once a year all of those questions we can seek answers for and help normalize whatever position there we go okay, again, again. <laughs> sorry for now and not see it's so 50s based isn't it
2: <laughs> carry on film again but i think it's it's i mean i'd like to feel that we are doing a little bit of you know helping the, the those people out there because there are different cultures who still don't talk about it mm. i think that you know in our world we do a lot more than we used to, but there are definitely cultures out there and I know probably people are listening, or women who are listening, who don't discuss it and it, it may be something you still don't want to do, but we will put a lot of resources up on the website um, and as Kate said, she's got her book, read them, learn and then and mm. and then and you know, there is a way to, to talk to your partner.
1: And don't be afraid to go and see your GP either. I no. think it's yeah. important. No one should have to suffer painful sex there is and we've got some really information coming out through through um, menopause health judith spruce who mm. has written a great blog for us about uh testosterone mm. uh, one of those hrt drugs that doesn't get quite the exposure that it should do in in its help with libido issues because it's not provided by the nhs you have to get a private prescription for it but it can help in so many ways with brain fog and other menopause symptoms but also libido um, and unfortunately women have to go and get that privately and it is not cheap, um, to do that. But, um, I think so that's very... testosterone for women. Yes. Mm-hmm. And the very important thing to know is if you do get it through, um, the NHS, if you're lucky enough, shall I say, um, it's actually testosterone for men, which you then have to like almost cut it's like quite a high dose, wasn't it? Well, yeah, you get a thing that is like five doses that you then have to sort of chop up yourself. <sighs> But if you get testosterone that is made um, specifically for women, it um, is so much better for you and so you not need li- very little. So it's
2: not licensed here, but
1: is it licensed? It is so licensed much- here. Oh, it is licensed, but you just can't get it on the NHS. Yeah, the NHS doesn't provide that. Why
2: don't that. we know about this?
1: Uh, yeah. Hello. We do now. Yeah, because we're telling right. you. Yeah. Yeah, really good blog. Mm-hmm. And as usual, a ton of resources in our midlife library. So, always check that out at www dot dot com I learned a lot, mm. and that's not you know I'm not to you know, giggle about it so I learned I
2: to say a lot mm. about things i didn't I didn't know there was so much information out there because I, I didn't know
1: where to start looking mm. but once you start, whoa, there's a lot there is a lot um and please do us a favor. Don't limit this podcast to yourself if you think it could help a friend or you want to use it as a hopping off point to have a conversation with your partner. Um, please do share it and it would mean so much to us if uh, you could help signpost our resources and our podcast to other people by just rating and reviewing it on whatever podcast platform that you listen on so I think that's all from us it is chat soon